The world is like a ride at an amusement park. And when you choose to go on it, you think it's real, because that's how powerful our minds are. I can tell you from experience, the effect you have on others is the most valuable currency there is. Don't think. Feel. It is like a finger pointing away to the moon. Don't concentrate on the finger or you will miss all that heavenly glory. You take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Hey brothers, welcome back to the Liberation Mentor Podcast. I know it's been a long time since the last episode, I think well over two months. So I'll just let you guys know what's been happening in my life. I I live in America now, but I'm originally from South Africa, as most of you know. And I went home to South Africa to see my family. I hadn't seen them for two years. And so what I did is I flew from the West Coast of the United States to New York, then to London, then to South Africa, and spent a month in South Africa and then flew on to Asia. I had some business to do in Asia. And then I, well, I was in Southeast Asia and then I flew to Japan. And then I finally flew home. So I basically traveled around the world in seven weeks. Well, it was maybe a bit longer than seven weeks. And truth be told, you know, I thought I'd be able to continue with most of my work from the road, including the podcast. And I really thought it would be kind of cool to stay in touch with you guys while I was on my travels. But it just didn't work out that way. I realized that to, to do my work properly, I really need a stable base and a, and a foundation of um, stability and routine, which I just didn't have overseas. You know, like the internet connection wasn't always great or I was jet lagged to hell and back or I was focused on, I don't know, seeing my family or the business I was doing in, in Asia. So it was just very, very difficult for me to keep the show going, which I'm annoyed about because I made myself a promise that I wouldn't let the show, I'd always keep the show a priority because I enjoy it so much. But anyway, I'm back and um, I've got some cool stories to tell. I think what I'm going to do is uh, a little bit later in the year, I'm going to do a solo episode where I just discuss everything I learned on that trip because I had some really deep insights it was a very, very impactful and profound trip for me. And I I learned a lot about myself that uh, I'd love to share with you guys because I think the lessons that I took home, quite literally, will help you just as much as they helped me. But before we, I do that solo episode, we're going to have an episode with a guest um, this week who is man, just a, a very extraordinary human being who has overcome a hell of a lot of adversity in his life more than pretty much any any of us. And he's he's come out clean on the other side. And uh, I think you guys are going to appreciate this episode a hell of a lot. Before we get into that, I want to give you guys an update on my, my coaching work. You know, um, at the end of 2018, I started shifting towards a, a new career. You know, I, I was a full-time jiu-jitsu instructor for a long, long time. But I was feeling the call to do something different, to expand and after a lot of reflection and self-analysis and planning, I started a business where I coach men on how to become the very best versions of themselves, because that's what I'm all about. I want to be the very best version of myself. And uh, I've learned a lot of things along the way in that, with that objective and goal in mind. And, and I've gained what I believe to be a lot of wisdom regarding that. And now I've, I've been sharing it with, with other men, just like you over the, the course of the last year and two months. And uh, it turns out I'm fucking good at this. 
I know that sounds incredibly arrogant, but sometimes you got to give yourself credit. And I'm good at this. It's it's what I was born to do. I really believe that. And so if you're a guy who has had some success in life or, or climbed the ladder and realized that that ladder has been leading against the wrong wall and you want some fresh perspectives on life and you want to be able to see some new possibilities for yourself, head on over to my site, liberationmentor.com, and um, you can book a free coaching call with me. It'll take about an hour. And in that call, I will do my very best to help you become the best best version of yourself or at least give you some advice and guidance on how you can start to become the best version of yourself. There's no obligation and it'll be a, a fun and illuminating conversation. So head on over to liberationmentor.com and book a free call if that's something that interests you. Okay, guys, on to the episode. This is my new friend, colleague, and uh, fellow podcaster slash coach. His name is Marcus Aurelius Anderson. I hope you enjoy the show, guys. Hey, brothers, welcome back to the Liberation Mentor Podcast. And I have a wonderful guest with me today to kickstart the 2020 uh, series of shows. This is someone who, man, this guy has beat all the odds. This is one of those people who, when you look at what he's done and what he's overcome, you realize that you have no excuse. His name's Marcus Aurelius Anderson, which is in itself an amazing, powerful name that could probably get him through life on its own. But besides that, he's gone and written an amazing book called The Gift of Adversity, amongst others. And he's a world-renowned speaker, coach, and just overall amazing human being. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Marcus. Hey, brother. Thank you so much for having me. It's, a, it's an honor, and I, I really look forward to this. It's going to be awesome. It is indeed. It is indeed. I could just, when, before we started the show, I, you know, most of the time with many of the guests, I haven't met them before. So as I did with you, we have a little pre-chat uh, or pre-interview chat, and I can tell almost instantaneously if I'm going to have a good conversation with that person. And with you, I could, I could tell straight away. I just, it's, it's the vibe, right? Good, good oh, vibes. Yeah. So I guess the, the most powerful thing to me about your story, well, there's many powerful things, but the one that stands out to me and that I think you sharing it will help everyone is that, man, you overcame uh, complete paralysis. Like you were a quadriplegic for a period of time. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Wow. And can you just tell us how that came to pass and how you overcame it? Yeah, it's uh, it's just like anything else, you know, there's, um, in this life, there's what we hope will happen. There's what we fear will happen. And then there's what actually happens. Um, as I was telling you before, uh, I joined the military at 38 years old and, uh, that's kind of a crazy age to join the military in the United States. Usually 35 is the age limit, but they signed, they signed an age waiver to get me in at 38 because I was in good shape. You know, I was, and I did well on their placement tests and things like that. And uh, a little pro prologue before that, as I was talking to you about our mutual love for Sudafrika, um, the whole idea, I, I, I had been married and then I got divorced. And after that divorce, right behind that, my great uncle, who was my biggest male role model to me, died. He, he passed away. So he was in special forces. He was in Vietnam. He was on long range reconnaissance patrol. And outside of my father, he was the biggest male role model on me. And both of those men really gave me those, the ethos that is very much in the martial arts, this idea of strength, resilience, honor, respect, humility. So I joined the military 38 years old. I joined the infantry. Uh, I get stationed in upstate New York, 
with a 10th Mountain Light Infantry Division. So if you've ever heard of Black Hawk Down, the mm-hmm. book or the movie, that's the division I was with. I was not with them at that time, but that was the, the people I was learning from. And my biggest fear was when I joined the military was that I may not make it through, like even boot camp. I get in boot camp and every guy that's there is half my age. I'm literally old enough to be their dad. Even the guys that are the drill sergeants are younger than me. Wow. So it's a big test in humility to, to see if you're going to do it. And uh, even younger guys at that point are like breaking their ankles, dislocating their shoulders, you know, um, fracturing their hips from all the impact. And, you know, the advantage that I had was my mentality. I was strong mentally because I'd lived some life compared to a person who, you know, somebody who was 18 and just got out of high school. I had a little bit of an advantage with that. So um, in 2012, for those of you that were kind of following in the the American elections at that time. In 2012, that was a year that President Obama was wanting to run for re-election. And they kept pushing our deployment back. But right before that was announced, as we were preparing to deploy, I ruptured a disc in my neck. And I suffered that, that spinal injury and it paralyzed me from the neck down. So, can you, can you tell us a little bit more detail about how that injury occurred? Yeah, there was no specific method of onset, but it was... Like, like the week leading up to it, I had really bad numbness in my hands and my feet. Um, I'm stationed in upstate New York, which is 30 miles south of the Canadian border. So it's very cold. This is in the dead of winter. So in my mind, I'm thinking, well, my hands or feet are cold and my neck hurts because it's negative 20 degrees outside. We're going through the snow and the ice. We're doing 25 mile ruck marches with 100 pounds on your back. As a soldier, your mentality is always to just push, 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 and whatever pain and discomfort you feel, you just push that away because you have a very important objective, which is to deploy. But for me, as the the week leading up to that realization of the injury kept going, things got worse and worse. I was having a hard time walking. I was having a hard time getting out of bed. And I just attributed that to being you know, old or out of shape. Mm-hmm. But Eventually, the morning that weekend, I woke up and I tried to roll out of bed. And as I tried to roll, my my neck would articulate a little bit, but the rest of my body wouldn't. And at first, I sort of chuckled to myself and I thought, oh, well, you know, the old man's sore. But after about two minutes and I didn't, my body wouldn't respond, I had enough knowledge to understand that, okay, this is something serious. And uh, this is either a serious neurological condition or... I'm going to, you know, recover from it quickly. Mm-hmm. They were knocking on my door anyway for a for a report, and I just yelled through the door. I'm like, "Hey, I can't move." And uh, you know, the, I'm not not the kind of guy that really jokes around about something like that. So they hmm. they asked me a couple of times. They knocked the door in, and all of a sudden, we're on our way to the hospital. And uh, I'm starting to kind of, you know, everything goes sideways at that point. Trying to figure out what what happens next. Wow. And so the the diagnosis was that. I mean, or the prognosis was that you're going to be paralyzed for the rest of your life or, or like, tell, tell me what happened from that point on. So they rushed me into the hospital, just like they do in, in the movies. They have me on a gurney, they're running full blast. They have an army of people around me trying to poke and prod me to look at my eyes through do neurological exams and things. They get me into the MRI, they check it and they, they find the disc is ruptured. Some more background. I was in chiropractic school. I was about two years away from my doctorate when I got injured mm-hmm. before I joined the military. So I have enough medical kind of background to understand that, you know, okay, this is what they're looking for with an MRI. And when they take put me back in the holding room after the MRI, the nurse comes back in and says, okay, we're going to prep you. And it's this is going to sound dumb, but when you're injured like that or when you're a soldier or when you have like this huge compelling goal in front of you, 
I just hoped that all they were going to have to do was like, give me a shot or give me some physical therapy or do something and release me because in my mind, we're still deploying. And I'm sort of in denial that this injury is even going on. Mm -hmm. But when she says, we're prepping you, and I was like, for what? And she says, well, for surgery. That's when it really hits me in the stomach. They, uh, they wheel me down to the, the operating room. There's about a dozen people outside the operating room waiting for me, which doesn't make me feel any better because if it takes a dozen people to make me survive this thing, it's going to be pretty intense, obviously. But the big thing was the neurologist there was told me what was going on. I, I asked him, I said, okay, so the disc is ruptured my neck. It's compressing my spinal cord. So your spinal cord is like a, a water hose. Mm-hmm. And if you have, if you step on a water hose with your foot, none of that water will communicate below that. So all the the delicate structures of my spine, your spine is about half an inch in diameter and it's made out of little strands of silk almost. That's where your nervous system is. Mm-hmm. So to have that kind of compression on your spine is very, very damaging. It's very detrimental. And they said, we're going to remove all the discs. We're going to fuse your neck. We're going to put some metal in there and then, you know, then you'd be good. And I said, oh, so that means I'll be able to walk. And then it's just quiet. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's not what you want to hear. And the, the, and the people that are listening to this, I mean, everybody that, that's listening to this is very physical. So imagine going from being a civilian and being in pretty good shape as a civilian, pushing your body to limits that you never thought possible, where you're doing almost these crazy superhuman things where you're, like I said, you know, running with 25, running 25 miles with 100 pounds on your back in the snow, negative 20 degrees, you can barely see it's freezing outside. And then going from that level of physicality to being paralyzed and being told, we don't know if you're going to walk again or not. And them telling you, well, listen, just try to calm down so that we can get through this. And then you can worry about the rehab on the other side. Mm -hmm. That's a big, big awakening. And that scares the hell out of you, to be honest. Mm -hmm. I'm guessing that was probably your most vulnerable point in your whole life. Uh, Actually, the the point right after that, the, uh, they, uh, we go into the operation, they put the the anesthesia on me, I count down from 100, I get to about 98. And then uh, there's a point where it's just very, very cold and very, very black. Mm-hmm. And um, it feels like it was a moment and it feels like it was forever. And then all of a sudden, I'm, I wake up in the ICU and the nurse is like, welcome back to the land of the living, Mr. Anderson. The circus not too long after that sits at the foot of the table. And at this point, I'm still, still paralyzed and I have a neck brace on. So what little movement I did have is completely arrested. And... Uh, the doctor says, well, um, you know, you had us worried we lost you a couple of times. Hmm. And I didn't know what he meant by lost me. He says, no, you, you were gone. You flatlined. And uh, we didn't think we were going to get you back that last time. So he was very congratulatory in his tone, though. He says, you know, the, the, this is the good news. You get to live the tale the tale. He says, but, uh, you know, it would be irresponsible for me to tell you that you would ever walk or use your hands again. He says, this is what you're left with. He's like, and just try to... Um, you know, just kind of think about it and just try to absorb it and uh, try to get some rest. And so I, I was in denial, obviously, after that, because he says, and I said, is there any chance? He said, no. He says, if it's going to happen, it would have happened already. He says, it would have happened the minute that we took all that stuff out of your neck. So I'm in the ICU for the, the rest of that week. And I kept thinking, well, tomorrow I'll walk or t- tonight I'll walk or the day after. But because to me, he says, well, you overcame death. So I was like, well, I should be able to overcome this walking thing. But, mm-hmm. but um, what happened was when they put me back in my unit after a week, then it became very obvious. And that week was the week that I turned 40. So most yeah. people, when they're 40 years old, 
they they're looking at their life. They go their their 40th birthday is a milestone where they're looking at their wife and their kids and their incredible family and their incredible career and all this money and and their house. And for my 40th birthday, I wake up broke, divorced, bedridden, and paralyzed, trying to figure out what the hell do I do next. And um, that was probably my my lowest point. Wow. Okay. I'm just, I'm, I'm really struggling to process that. I mean, I've been, I've been down and out a few times in my life, but that never at that level. (laughs) So, I mean, you're obviously not paralyzed now. Right. So what happened? How did you overcome this really bleak prognosis and this, this death sentence that your doctor basically gave you? Yeah, it's, and that's where it's tough. Um, for the first, you know, two months, basically, I was just livid. I was just mad at everybody. But what I was mad at was I was really mad at myself because I realized how much time I had wasted. I realized how many times I had put things off until tomorrow with the assumption that there would always be tomorrow. Mm -hmm. I took all of the time, talent, and potential I'd been given for granted because I assumed that I would always have it. And there's a, there's a saying they say, you don't know what you got till it's gone, but Nick, that's not true. The reality is we know what we have. We just assume that we will always have it. Hmm. And that's why it's, it's important to not take anything you have for granted, whether it be your physicality or your training partner or your ability to think on your own. So I went through that really, really dark place for months. And um, after about three months, I finally kind of had an epiphany and I realized that listen, I can either you know, be angry and play the victim for the rest of my life or I can try to change my perspective about this, this thing that's happened to me. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, I wanted desperately to walk. I wanted desperately to move my hands again. But I, I tried to use as much philosophy as I could and, and Taoism and Stoicism and Zen and, and Buddhism and you know, Budo from Japanese ideas those things were all flowing through my mind, but they just sound like a bunch of flowery BS when you're in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. It sounds, it's easy to say, you know, adversity is a gift when you're not, when you don't have a big, huge guy that's got you inside control, that's just pressing his knee into your belly. And, you know, it's, it's different when you're actually in it. For me, what I had to do is I, I had to take myself out of the equation and I had to take away all my desire to, to try to recover. And I, I did it like this. I said, listen, okay, clearly I'm not happy with where I'm at, but did anybody benefit from me being hurt? And I thought about it and I thought about it pretty hard. And I finally came to the conclusion that this injury would have happened to me irrespective of where I was in the, in the world. So whether I was in the United States or whether I was in Afghanistan in, in the, the hills, in the mountains, this would have happened, this injury. Mm-hmm. So that made me realize, okay, for every one man that is injured in, in combat, it takes two men to pull him to safety. So if I'd have been in Afghanistan in, in a hot zone and I'd been suffered this injury, I would have put my team in danger. That means I would have put the rest of our squad in danger. There would have been a squad that would have had to cover down. That means there would have been a Chinook helicopter that had to fly into a hot zone to come get me. In all, there were probably 30 or 40 other people whose lives would have been put in harm's way had I suffered this injury overseas. And then after I finally looked at it like that, for the first time in my life, I was like, wow, I had this unconditional 
gratitude, this 360 gratitude. And I was like, wow, I'm lucky. Hmm. And that's, that was the, the beginning. And I broke down, I cried for, I don't know how long. And I just learned that a lot of my life, I had taken things for granted because I had arrogance, because I had hubris. I had the assumption like, okay, we'll, we'll talk about martial arts. So there's always that person that walks in, into the gym that has great physical capacity. They're an athlete, naturally. You show them an armbar once they got it. You show, they, maybe, they, maybe they have a wrestling background and they're really good, they have good hips. But that person doesn't respect the art nearly as much as the person who walks in off the street who is not naturally athletically gifted. Yeah, because there's a, there's a saying that, oh, I don't know if I'm going to get this right, but it's like talent is, is like a fickle mistress that comes and goes, whereas skill you have control over, you've, you've earned that and it's yours to command, right? And that's the primary difference. No, I absolutely love that saying. And that, that's exactly it. So, and that's why we can see somebody that has a natural athletic capacity. They may do well. They may you know, go well through the ranks. But when they actually face adversity, when they actually face that person that's better than them, or when they find that person that they can't just overpower, or the person who's just better than they are, they can f- feel their intention before then and just keeps tapping them over and over and over again, that person is more likely to quit because it's their ego that they're trying to, you know, get get through with than the person who goes through who is still trying to understand how to maintain control in in you know in guard or any of these things. So mm-hmm. these are the ideas that really, really came into play. So for me, and, and we'll use another martial analogy. So if you and I are like locked up and you you've got the underhooks on me and you're you're pushing into me. It's hard for me to resist that because you already have the advantage. You're stronger than I am. You, you already have the momentum. But if I can pull just a moment while you're pushing, there's a, within that is an opportunity. Mm-hmm. Within, within that is the gap. So for me, what I, I kept finding was this adversity of paralysis kept pushing into me. And I kept fighting it with all my might. And it wasn't, I wasn't winning. So <laughs> finally, I thought, I'm just going to go with this. Whatever direction this is pushing me. Well. I'm going to go with this because nothing you, else you is sur- working. You, sur- you surrendered basically. You, you sur- and I don't mean surrendered by saying you, g- you gave up, but you kind of, you surrendered to the universe and was like, okay, whatever I need to learn from this or whatever it's trying to teach me, let it come instead of me trying to control everything as I've done my whole life. Is that accurate? That is exactly it. And a lot of people don't get that. Like I was literally saying, I'm going to tap. I, I don't know what goes from here. I don't know wh- what my life holds, but I know that this is not working. And I know that everything else has failed. And I know that if this fails as well, I'm, I haven't lost anything. I'm still where I am exactly. Yeah. So, so when I was able to, to find that actual real gratitude, that's when everything started changing for me. And when I, I started to be grateful for the bed that I may never get out of, I became grateful for the room that I may never leave. And a week after I started having genuine, genuine gratitude, I started getting feeling back in my fingers. Wow. That is incredible. And that was the beginning for me. And when I started seeing adversity as a gift instead of a curse, that's when I started learning. And that's, the, the thing is, okay, Nick, everybody talks about gratitude, right? They mm-hmm. talk about gratitude and they, they use it like this crutch and they use it like this excuse to be passive and they use it as this excuse to not try to go out and make the most of themselves. But gratitude doesn't work like that. 
you, you can't just sit on your hands and let your world fall down around you and then say, oh, but I'm grateful. Or have this little magical journal that you write down these things that you're grateful for. Because when you do that, all you're doing is being grateful for the things that you like. Hmm. But the people that make you better when you roll in jujitsu are the people that are harder than you, the people that are stronger, the people that are better. And you don't get better by wrestling somebody that's lesser than you. Unless, of course, you, again, like limit the technique or put your hand in your belt or say, I'm only going to do uma palata on this one side, yada, yada, yada. But they're stronger, that are better, that have better technique, that are more experienced than you are. And that's where the adversity is. And so it comes down to that idea of being grateful even for being tapped, being grateful for just getting manhandled for 10 minutes. All these ideas are the things that make you get better because... If it were up to us, we would always take the easy route because that's the way we are designed genetically. As a species, we want to conserve energy. We want to take the shortcut if we can get there. But the reality is in this life, you are only as strong as the adversity that you overcome. And understanding that and, and being able to be grateful for everything, both the good and the bad, now if you can see the opportunity in everything in your life, whether it be the guy that cuts you off in traffic and gives you the finger or whether it be winning the lottery, if you can be just as grateful for both of those things, now you're bulletproof. Because no matter Mm -hmm. what happens to you in your life, everything is an opportunity. Everything is a blessing. And just like I say in my TEDx talk, the physical manifestation of adversity is an adversary, an opponent. And though it may sound counterintuitive, an adversary is probably our best teacher. Because their intentions are pure. They... We know what they want. They're, they wear their intention on their sleeve. And that's the thing that makes us get better. So if I'm trying to defend myself or if we're in the, you know, on the mat or even if I'm out defending myself on the street, the opponent that gives you the most energy and gives you a very honest attack is the opponent that you have to be the most grateful for because even if you get hurt, even if you quote unquote lose or have to tap, that's where the truth is. And you have to mm-hmm. be willing to do that. That's extremely powerful, Marcus. And I, you know, I'm not what I'm what I'm really focusing on in my life at the moment is becoming someone who truly listens. I wasn't always that way, and I think very few people are that way. They don't they when they're listening to someone, they're basically just waiting for the gap where they can say something. And I was truly, truly listening to you and what you were saying. And something kept coming up for me that you know, I, I want to discuss it with you. I'm not challenging what you've said, and I, I think that there's a lot of a lot of truth in what you've said. But what I what I'm concerned with is the is the current movement in in the world, uh, particularly amongst men. You know, I, I think most men are like very weak in shadows of what they could be, and I think that's a very unhealthy way to live. But I also think that there's this other equally disturbing trend which is this masochism and this strange desire to like destroy yourself to prove something you know and i think i I use crossfit as as the example usually and and actually martial arts often become a negative example of this as well you know i look at a lot of guys in jiu-jitsu and at, at 45 they're just crippled right? Because they just kept pushing harder and harder and harder. And like, you know, it's, it's like, enjoy the struggle, embrace the grind, push through, <laughs> you know? And, and, and I don't, I don't think life's supposed to be like that. I don't think it's supposed to be this. Actually, let me, let me uh, tie this into another thought that I've been having that I'd love your, your perspective on, which is that like you, you mentioned, and I know you're a scholar of stoicism and 
um, uh, stoicism interests me and I think there's value to it, but, but it's my belief that your mind is, or the human mind is such a powerful thing. It literally is the engine that creates the reality that you experience. And so if you load it with software that says life is terrible, life is miserable, life is this constant never ending struggle and then you die. So just be thankful for the little scraps of joy or, or pleasure that you get then that is what your experience will be. Your experience will start spitting those things out at you. It'll be like, okay, if that's what he believes, then that's what I'm going to give him. Whereas if you adopt the belief that life is a joyful, exciting adventure that is you know, not necessarily supposed to be easy, but that is also supposed to be characterized sometimes by ease and flow, right? There are definitely struggles and challenges, but you know, I mean, that's why you hear the, when someone's sick, they, they say he has a dis-ease. You know, he's out of ease. He's not flowing through the world, right? He's been pushed out of ease by this, this sickness. And so for me, it's, I'm not claiming to have the answer and I'm not claiming either one of these philosophies is correct. It's actually something I struggle with and that I'm looking, I'm looking for the middle ground because there's days when I wake up and I whip myself. I'm like, I got to work harder. I got to do more. I got to push I got it. Like I have to, I have to. Like, and then I'm, and I put all this pressure on myself and there's days when I wake up and I'm like, I don't do that. And I'm just in the flow and, and life just, it just happens. And it's, it's far more enjoyable. And, and to me, I'm, and then I get guilty. I start feeling guilty. I'm like, this should be harder. This should be like, you know, I should be, I should be crushing it. I should be grinding through. And then, and so I don't really know what the answer is and any input you could give me on this, Marcus, I'd thoroughly appreciate Oh, of course. And what you're describing is, is good because it's a, a classic quandary of a person who has self-awareness. If, if you were just reading every meme and saying, embrace the suck, enjoy the grind, push, 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 then uh, you would eventually become burnout in some way, shape or form mm-hmm. and not be able to do the thing that you love. So Bruce Lee has an incredible quote, and I think it's a great philo- philosophical ideal for, for a lot of people. And he says, absorb what is useful, discard what is useless, and then add what is specifically your own. The reality is in life, there will absolutely be times of ease. There will absolutely be times of struggle. But the reality is it, the undulations occur every moment, every breath that we take. Mm-hmm. So the, the great thing about Stoicism is it's almost like Taoism. There will be times in your life when we cannot control what's going on. So right now where I'm at, it's raining and it's cold and it's miserable. So if I go outside and lament the fact that it's cold and wet and miserable, I'm going to make it worse. I'm focusing on the hardship. Mm-hmm. But are you, are you in England by any chance? Uh, actually, no, I'm in the United States. I'm in the <laughs> no, central I'm part kidding. of the United States. <laughs> I, just, just, I lived in England for 10 years and that was basically the average day, 300 days a year. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Sorry to inter- have interrupted you, um, Marcus. No, but that's but that's exactly it. So, in the situations where we are unable to control something, uh, again, like you said, if you're if you're having to grind through doing things at work, whether it be admin type stuff or, or emails or whatever, and that just simply has to be done, and you don't have the luxury of delegating that to somebody else, then that's when you kind of have to put on that stoic hat and say, you know what, I, I have no other choice. If this is endurable, I, I will endure it, as Marcus Aurelius says. So then you just push through and you make it happen. Should you live your entire life like that with struggle? No, not at all. I see that adversity is a gift because it forces us to evolve into a person who can become stronger. But if you look at it from a really, really strong standpoint, if you pull, peel the, the onion, as you would think, 
there are other reasons that we have to see adversity. So for example, maybe the adversity of meditating for some people is difficult. Mm. Maybe the adversity in a conversation that you know you should be having with a partner or with a family member or with your spouse or with a person at the gym. These are all forms of adversity. The adversity, again, uh, like you were saying, where you tell yourself you must push harder. Well, that's maybe you should be asking yourself, why? Mm -hmm. Maybe we should be asking ourselves, what am I trying to achieve? What is the end goal for this? Mm -hmm. And then ask ourselves, because here's, here's what happens. If we say we had to push harder, 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 because I have clients that do this all the time. I have CEOs of multi-million dollar companies. And then I ask them, okay, when will you be to a point where you feel like you don't have to push anymore? And they have no answer. So just by asking mm -hmm. that question makes them understand that they are intellectually sucker punching themselves all the time and that it will never be enough. Mm -hmm. So now you have to come back and say, okay, so I'm going to push until I'm uh, a brown belt or I'm going to push until I make my first million or I'm going to push until I'm married and have X amount of kids. But again, that becomes a self-defeating prophecy because once you get to that point, you're never satisfied. So the big, the big lesson in this is to find the fulfillment in what you're doing right now mm -hmm. and to celebrate the things that you're doing, but still have that blissful dissatisfaction in the process to continue to push yourself to, to move. And again, there's going to be some people that the way that they were brought up, if they had a really strong male role model or if they had somebody that was really, really hard on them that told them they weren't good enough or kept pushing them, that breeds that insecurity. And that's what they, that's what they chase their entire lives. Sure. Almost like what we talked about with the athlete who's really good at, at uh, martial art right off the bat. That's his sweet spot. But yet if you talk to him about, about philosophy or about personal development or about meditation or about personal relationships, he may not be very good at those things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So even the same thing with business, there's entrepreneurs that I know that are making, that are worth a lot of money. Yet mm -hmm. what they're doing is they're substituting their anxiety of dealing with their own personal issues with work because that's more gratifying. And now they get to be this badass in this arena of what that is. And now people working a hundred hours a week and that they've pushed themselves and they're pushing the company and they're doing all these things. So in the end, we have to decide what we want what that goal is, what it looks like whenever we achieve that goal. And then do you know how many people that I have had as clients that have a goal that it's this dream and when they achieve it, it becomes a nightmare? Can you give me an example? Perfect example. I have a CEO client from, I've had him for a long time. His goal was to get his company to 40 million and he <laughs> achieved it. But by the time he was talking to me, his wife was a stranger. His kids didn't want to talk to him anymore. And he, was, he had climbed this huge mountain to get success. But yet when he was looking down the mountain, it was scorched earth around him. <laughs> there was nobody to celebrate the victory with him. His wife didn't care because she'd already been alienated. His kids had already moved off to college and they didn't have any conversations. There was no relationship there now. And so trying to get back into those places where he's no longer the same person that he was. And I understand that people have to evolve yet he understood at that point that money wasn't going to buy him those things. Sure. He understood that the relationships were the most important thing. And here's something I want everybody to listen. I want you to hear me. If you listen to nothing else that I say during this conversation, if you woke up tomorrow paralyzed from the neck down, what would you wish you would have accomplished with your life? Wow. Wow. That is, that is hugely powerful. 
That is, yeah, I, I guess the first thing that came to my mind is I thought the question you were going to ask is who would you wish would be sitting there with you, watching you or like watching over you? But I mean, yeah, I guess you're speaking of legacy or, oh, that's incredibly powerful. I, I think for a lot of people, the answer wouldn't be X amount of money or anything specifically material like that. It would usually be like a quality of relationships or experiences that they had or a way that they moved through the world or um, joy that they brought to others. I mean, what would you, exactly. let's say, yeah. That's exactly it. I mean, I, I learned from lying in a bed that the kind of car I drive, the amount of money I have in the bank is just, the money that you have in the bank is just a number on a computer screen or a slip of paper, honestly, because it's not going to help you if you can't move or if you don't <laughs> have the capacity to do it, right? So that's why I asked the question and there's no wrong answer, but what that question does is just like with you, that the answer that came to you was, wow, having a relationship, having somebody there with me, that's the important thing. Because in the end, if all the things that society values like money and status are really without much worth as we understand now, then that's when you have to ask yourself what really matters. Yeah. Yeah. It's such an interesting thing that we live, we live in a world where everything really is upside down. You know, we, we, we are sold things like our food is sold as health food, but it actually is, is the furthest thing from it. You know, like education often dumbs us down. You know, there's all these things that are the are just backwards. They're inside off of the way they should be. And one of those things that it took me such a long time to understand is, is fame and wealth and those things. They're just, there's nothing wrong with them, but they are not fulfilling. And that's, you know, I've, been surrounded by some like I'm sure you have by some extraordinarily successful people and it always it blows my mind how often they are just I don't want to say the word isn't weak but just just very average human beings do you know what I mean like they they just don't have like maybe average isn't the right word but they just they don't have a spark to them they don't have like a it's it's like they're not people that I would often choose to spend a lot of time around if that makes sense. And again, it's not always the case. I know wealthy people who are lovely, but, but very often like the, the guys who put their, their stock of what they're worth in the thing, like the car they drive or how much money they have, they're the most empty, vacuous, boring people. Like truly, like you just, I just don't want to be around them. It's that's such an interesting thing to me. And then the world tells you, but that's, that's what you should be focused on. That's what you should be trying to get. And that's why it's so that's why it's so important to have that self knowledge, to have that identity for what matters to us. Nobody can take away any of my black belts or any of the experiences that I've had because I had to earn those through time, through effort, through repetition, through hard work, just like you with what you've done. But at the same time, those people technically could buy a black belt from somebody, I'm sure, yet it doesn't mean the same. Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, actually, that's one of the things I noticed in. In jujitsu, actually, like there would be a guy like he'd come in and again, I respect the guy for coming in because in this particular example, but there'd be like a, a 50 year old guy who'd come in and he'd be driving a Rolls Royce or, you know, a Lamborghini or something. And he, there'd be myself and the other jujitsu instructors who were all broke ass 22 year olds who just lived on the mats. And I could tell that he was jealous of us. And most of us just couldn't get, get our heads around that. We were like, what do you mean, man? And he was like, no, you guys are doing the thing you care about or the thing that excites you. And like, 
So uh, that's that's an example I think of often. I'm sure you have many from the, the people you work with and the people you've interacted with as well. That's absolutely it. And and that's what I, like in the book, I'm always using stories like that and analogies because you can tell somebody a, a lesson and it, it and they're like, okay, but if you can tell them a, a story and make it compelling and really drive that point home, then that's the story that they're going to remember. And now they're going to tell other people or they're going to remember it. So again, the next time that they're on the mat and they're dealing, the next time they're on the mat and they're being a mat bully and then they roll with somebody and that person's being a mat bully to them and they're all like butthurt about it, they need to remember. It's like, well, listen, you know, what comes around goes around. You know, how, how, are, you, how are you showing up? How are you approaching this? Are you approaching this as a way to flex your own ego or are you going to try to get back and help this person get better you know, are you going to allow this person the opportunity to try to work their technique? You know? So what's, what's next for you, Marcus? What are you, in fact, that's, that's not the, that's not a good question. A better question would be, so you, you retained or regained use of your limbs and you could start to walk again. You took this gift of adversity and you said, okay, I'm going to package this and I'm going to share this with people. Is that, was that the next thing that happened? Is that how you came to be where you are today? Uh, it, it wasn't that, that quick because, uh, you know, when I recovered, it was weird because uh, the reality for us as human beings is this. When we face some sort of hardship or some sort of trauma or some sort of adversity in our life, our natural inclination is to get as far away from that as we can and put as much distance between us and that hardship as possible. But for me, even now, I still have numbness from the middle of my forearms to my hands and the middle of my shins to my feet. So I went back to the martial arts, which was my first love to try to regain some of that physicality. I went from 180 pounds in great, you know, soldier shape to 230 pounds, you know, lost a bunch of muscle, gained a bunch of fat. And that really coming back to the martial arts and, and rolling on the ground and throwing kicks and punches and working the blade and the stick and, and trying to understand the firearm again, all these martial mentalities were the things that really helped me get some of my physicality back. And I didn't know what to do with this knowledge. It's like I had just gone through this huge thing and the universe has given me this definitive experience, but I didn't know what to do with it. And what ended up happening was I had students that wanted to be, you know, wanted to be private students. So these were people that had the money they could afford private lessons. So one of the students in particular, he would take me to lunch after we would have our lesson every a couple times a week. And every time we would be at lunch, we, he would always talk about his business. He was very well off. He uh, financed, he had all kinds of uh, real estate. And at one point, every time he would talk about something, I would always bring it back to a concept or a philosophy that we talked about in the, in the lesson, literally right before that. And one day he was just like, listen, I'm paying a coach a bunch of money, a business coach, a lot of money per month to help me with my business. And I'm getting more value from you than I am from that guy. Mm-hmm. So sarcastic. <laughs> I was like, well, you know, just write me a check, whatever you want to do. And uh, he actually goes out to his vehicle, fires that coach on his cell phone, comes back and writes me a check, slides it over for six months of training and, and says, so uh, how do you want to do That's do great. This? I have to laugh because I've had pretty much, you know, not the exact same experience, but, but a very similar experience. Um, and that's what one of the reasons I got into into coaching as well, um, because a lot of my, my jiu-jitsu private students, I would share with them the same thing, philosophies that we had learned or that I had learned through jiu-jitsu and that were working for me in other areas of my life. And once I shared them with 
these private students, they wanted more. They wanted to take it into other areas of their life. So it's, it really makes me smile to hear you had the exact same experience. And, and it's so true. It, and especially as we become better at the martial arts, right? Like we start to see it everywhere. So for me, helping him with that, that was, that was a no-brainer. He had more people in that tax bracket. He would refer me more people. One of his friends in that tax bracket had an event they, they were doing at this... It was a charity event, but they said, could you come and tell your story? I didn't know what that meant. I just said, yeah, I'll come up. So I come there. There's 400 people there. They put me on stage. I have a mic. But again, what are we? We're martial arts instructors. We're used to talking in front of people. Sure. We're talking about something that we're experts at. We're talking about something we love. So I just tell my story. And they do Q&A for about half an hour. And they write me a check for a couple thousand dollars. And I was like, I can't take that. And they said, you're the keynote speaker, dummy. This is what we pay you. Take it. That's great. That led to more speaking. At one of the speaking events after that, there was a woman at the the back of the room that wanted to talk to me. She was asked, I could tell she had something on her mind. She waits for everybody else to leave. She's pacing back and forth. She comes up after everybody else leaves and she says, your speech was incredible. I want to buy your book. Ma'am, I don't have a book. And she just looks at me like she doesn't believe me. She like wags her finger at me. And what had happened was, her granddaughter was going through a divorce, was going through hardship, was going through adversity. And she says, You're, she has to hear your story, but she's not here. If you had a book, I could just give it to her. Mm. So if we listen to our audience, if we listen to the people we serve, our, our students, our clients long enough, they will tell us what they want or we will figure out what they need before they even get to that point. Mm-hmm. So I started writing the book and then halfway through my book, I was offered my TEDx talk. So it really gave me an opportunity to start to put these things into play and again, try to make it in this idea of adversity is a gift. Not so much in the fact that we want to go out and try to just walk into oncoming traffic or get into a knife fight with a bunch of people, but understand that adversity is a gift if we can try to find micro adversities in our life. So like you're saying, when you're pushing hard, when you're trying to, to do more, when you're trying to lift more, when you're trying to do sprints, when you're doing all these classes, that's fine. And that should be something that strengthens you. But in the end, if it's something that is taking energy away from you, if it is sucking you dry, it's not helping you. It's sure. going to be something that's going to burn you out. So we have to understand that we can use adversity as our compass in the short term to help us get better. But we want to be able to do these things long term. We want to be able to do this consistently. So again, that self-awareness like you were talking about before, yes, there will be days when you don't want to do it. And now you have to ask yourself, in the end, am I better off sleeping for an hour, to sleeping in for an hour, or am I better off pushing my body? And the reality is every single day, it will be different. Sure. And it take, it's up. And again, I suppose when I was asking you that question, um, you've just given me the answer. Right? I asked you earlier, like, because I wanted advice on, on which of these, or not which of these, but it's this constant paradox, right, that I'm torn between. And I just had this insight now that you described that, which is that no one can give you that answer. It's something that it's, it's something that's always changing and that you are responsible for yourself. Like that's why when you have a personal trainer, it's up to you to tell him when he's getting you to do like 50 reps of like a deadlift or whatever, or something that's too difficult for you. And it's, there's a pain in your lower back and you really feel like you're going to throw up. Like it's up to you to, to really figure out like, is this too much for me or am I just being lazy or is this really going to hurt me? Like he can't make that decision for you. Do you know what I mean? It's, you have to have the internal self-awareness. And I think that that's what a lot of people they lack, you know, and that's why they fall for stuff like 
CrossFit where the dude tells you to do snatches until you puke and drop the bell barbell on the back of your neck and, and are like seriously injured, right? It's because they, they don't have that internal self-awareness to know what, what really is good for them or what really is pushing them, causing them to grow and what is too much and leading to burnout. And so to me, the answer, which is, I guess, the answer to everything that I keep coming back to is just know thyself. The more you know about yourself, the, the less chance there is of being led wrong or making the wrong choice. Well, that's exactly it. And, and just like you were saying, the reason why to your students as, as clients as well made so much sense is because as a teacher, as a coach, as a guru or sifu or, or sensei, whatever you want to call that person, the best ones in the world will always be the ones that can walk that line. They'll be the ones that can tell you, listen, I know that you're tired. I know that you, that you want to give up, but you're not injured. We need to push. Then they're also sure. the ones that will be good enough to rein you back and say, listen, you know, you've got a fight coming up in four months. There's no reason for you to injure your knee right now. Mm-hmm. And that's where it's difficult. And that's where that trust comes in. And again, that self-awareness is key. But for most people, for most people, probably the people that are listening to us right now, and a lot of the people that I work with that are high achievers, it is easier for them to push through than it is for them to actually take their foot off the gas and try to yeah. take some time back. Exactly right. Exactly right. And the reason why is because they are probably driven by some sort of fear. Exactly right. I could not agree more. And I live my, a lot of my life like that, which like one of the most powerful things I learned from um, a woman called Louise Hay. She says like, whenever there's a problem, there's not something to be done. There's something to be understood. Right? And that really changed the way I looked at everything because most of my life I was taught to just keep finding, looking for a solution or trying stuff or taking action. And, and often that's not the answer. Often the answer is to figure is to stop and sit and ask yourself the question, why does this keep happening? Or why am I in this situation? Instead of just taking action to try to fix it or push through or like, does that make sense? That's, that's exactly it. Because for most people, anxiety builds up some sort of energy and they want to release it. And that's why those are the people that have a hard time sleeping. Those are the people that try to meditate and they can't get their mind to, to settle down. Those mm-hmm. are the people that want to do something physical to try to ex- get some of this exertion out so that whenever they can try to hit the head of the pillow to go to sleep at night, maybe they can get some peace. But just like you're saying, especially, and I'm going to say this about Americans, our default setting is instead of to take things away from the equation, it's to add. Sure. (laughs) Yeah. But the truth is that's, what is that that expression? So when things are not adding up, you you should subtract. Yeah, it, it absolutely is. And, and simplicity doesn't mean that it's easy to execute on. It just means that it's simple. Mm-hmm. So if I hack away all the other BS that's going on around me and only have two or three things in my life that are priorities, the, the reality is if everything in your life is a priority, then nothing is a priority. Sure. And so if I'm trying to do everything incredibly well, I'm going to just be spread thin, I'll burn out and I will get nothing accomplished. But if I can focus on physicality and jujitsu, if I can focus on meditation, if I can focus on my diet, if I can focus on the quality of my thoughts and my interactions with people around me and just say, this is all I'm going to try to do today. And some days I'm going to do it better than others. Everybody talks about balance, but Nick, the reality is there is no balance. There is only blend. Blend. There is only blend. So look at it like this. When you went out, let's say that you went up this morning, you got up and you went and rolled hard for two hours. During those two hours, you don't care about your relationships outside of the gym. You're not worried about social media. You're not caring about what's going on with your business. You're not worried about food. You're worried about those two things. So you redline the physicality at that point. Now, when you step off the mat, you get cleaned up, 
you get some food and now you're able to sit down and, and work with the client, the physicality comes down. And now you're working on that interaction. Now you're working on talking to that person, truly listening. Again, that circle in your life, now that's where you're redlining. And now when you're off of work or you're done working or you said that you're taking a break, now if there's somebody that you want to talk to in a relationship, a friend, a girlfriend, boyfriend, whatever, now you can be present in that. So it's about being able to blend. Darwin has been misquoted a thousand times. Darwin, people always say that he says, it's the battle of the fittest or the fittest species is the one that survives, the, the strong. But that's not what he said. He says, the species that is the most adaptable is the one that survives long-term. So there are adversities around us all day. There are undulations, there are fires we have to put out. And here's the reality. If I look at that and say, this is going to be difficult and I hope that this stops and I can't wait for this to be done, all I'm doing is disempowering myself mentally. But if I can just say, you know what? I understand that this is going to be there. I see adversity every day. I look adversity in the face and I look at it and I say, you know what? I see you now. You are an inevitability. You're not going away. And because I'm okay with that, you don't scare me anymore. Hmm. Marcus, this has been a powerful conversation. There's a lot for me to digest and it comes at a, a great time. I'm so happy that you were the first guest of the new year because that's really getting it off to a great start. If the people listening want to work with you or hear more about your stuff, where's the best place they should go to? They can just go to marcusaureliusanderson.com. That's my website. Mm-hmm. If you go, you can connect to me on LinkedIn. You can connect, you know, follow me on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter. If, if you heard this conversation between Nick and I, and it was powerful for you, whatever social media platform you like, or whatever, if you want to send me an email or whatever, tell me that you heard it. Tell me about the conversation. Tell me why it was powerful for you. And awesome. I'd love to, love to connect. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time, brother. Thank you, my friend. It was an honor to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah. I mean, if that isn't a powerful story, I really... I don't know what is. It's just mind-blowing what this dude has overcome. And one of the things that just becomes so clear to me when I'm speaking to someone like that is that your health is your greatest wealth. You know, it is is a priceless, precious gift. And it's one of the reasons, you know, I I couldn't hack it in the corporate world, right? That's the honest truth is because I could feel when I was sitting at that desk, staring at that screen and that spreadsheet, like I could feel my body degenerating so quickly. And, you know, that's just one thing I've always refused to compromise on, which is my health. Um, and if something starts interfering with that or getting in the way with it, it just, it gets chopped instantly. And I, I had a, a business relationship several years ago, which was, you know, it was, it was pretty conscientious and myself and, um, the person I was working with at the time, we were always fighting and always arguing and it was stressing me the fuck out. It was just stressing me out. And I was just like, this is starting to affect my health. You know, it was bothering my sleep. It was just like, just generally making me feel crappy. I was never present. And I I realized that it was compromising my health. And so I cut it out and was one of the best things I've ever done. And, you know, I I just, uh, I just want to give you guys hope that if you are in that position, if you're doing something that you know is not serving you, but you're just doing it for money or you're just doing it because you feel you have to, that's never the case, right? There's always a way out. There's always a perspective or something that you're not seeing that can help change your set of circumstances. And so I want you guys to keep the faith. Hope you enjoyed the show. Looking forward to doing a lot more amazing episodes this year. And until next time, love and light. Love and light.